Welcome to My Name is Not Steve, the podcast by storytellers about storytelling with people not named Steve. Hey, this is Pete Bauer. And I'm Dorothea Bauer. And welcome to My Name is Not Steve, episode four, Hopeful or Hopeless. It's going to be a big one. Yeah, yeah. We're going to cover the entire subject in its entirety for all time and all mankind in all cultures. In perpetuity. <laughs> in accordance with <laughs> prophecy, yes. Well, then let's get started. All right, let's go. It's going to be a big episode. It is. Excellent. Yes. All right, so um, Neil and Prey, right? We have to do our update? Yes. Okay, so we have our teen beta readers should be giving our feedback any minute now. And why is that important? How does that tie in, Dorothea? Well, first, I want to do a dun-dun-dun, because I was going to do that, and then you kept talking. <laughs> you feel better now that yes. you got that out? Okay. Yes. It was very important, All right. obviously, to the quality of the show. Excellent. <laughs> We're really excited to get their feedback. We haven't had any teen beta readers up until this point, so... We've certainly tried. We have, but it's going to be really great to get feedback from our target audience. Yeah. Instead of your friends. <laughs> <laughs> it's not friends. It's family. It's some strangers. That's the whole point of beta readers. But it is exciting because they're obviously our target demographic. And this is a little darker series when we talk about hopeful or hopelessness. And so we just kind of want to see where we are in walking that line. We want to have both. And I think we do. But it'll be interesting to see what the teens say. And the Price is going to be coming out pretty soon. It is. Well, if all goes well... I'm guessing like in the next month, I'm guessing, right? What? <laughs> that was far too long. Um, yes. Um, the answer to your what is uh, <laughs> yes, in a very short order. It is really exciting, though. We made a few tweaks to the book cover with our book cover designer, and I think yeah. it's going to work out really well for the rest of the series. So that is done. We have gotten our feedback from the editor. We're waiting for the feedback from the beta readers to finalize everything with her. And then all we'll have to do is actually upload it to the site to be published. And then my job comes into play. Yeah, then you have to get people to care. Yeah. So well. my job is to write impossibly difficult things to market. <laughs> and <laughs> your job is to actually get people to care. The reason we made some of the changes to the first book cover, just minor stuff with font and whatnot, is because we got the awesome cover for the second book. It really is fantastic. I, I love our book cover designer. The font was a little different. It looked much better on the second book. So we wanted them to have a similar look and feel. So we made some minor tweaks. And it's, um, I'm very excited about it. They, they look really great, not only individually, but together. And I can just kind of see this whole this whole series unfolding before my eyes. It's pretty cool. I feel like it's this really big epic moment for us. Yes. Because we've been working on this story for so long. Seven, eight years. And for people listening to this, <laughs> they're probably like, it's a first book. Yeah, <laughs> get over it. I know, but it is. And, and so remember, like last week, I asked my family, you and my wife and my son, I asked, what should we do, right, to celebrate this? Because this book, well, this series, this character has existed in various forms, whether it's movie scripts or TV scripts or now novels, and not only in our lives, but in our entire family's life for eight years. So Mostly we, because we talked about it a lot and they were not given a choice. <laughs> no, that, that's true. And mostly because I'm incapable of multitasking my brain. So when I'm in the process of writing 
which has been for eight years with this character. Yeah. It's all I think about. Like, you guys will see me and my face will be like in thought. And you'll be like, you're thinking about Gabby Wells, aren't you? I'm like, yes, yes, I am. You are really bad at multitasking. I am. It's almost comical. Slow down. (laughs) (laughs) I remember I wanted to tell you something one day and you said, go ahead. But you were doing like two things at the same time. (laughs) So I just waited. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you knew better. Because you had tried and failed too many times (laughs) before that. Yeah. Well, you know, you have to come to terms with what the way God made you. And God made me to do one thing really awesomely at a time. At least that's my take on it. <laughs> I don't we know if hope. that's true. Yeah. We're hopeful. Yeah. So anyway, that's the uh, the update. And I've actually not written anything on any of the other novels because this first novel has so many new kind of experiences for us. You know, like it's the first time you're you're working with an editor. It's the first time you're, well, at least we're working with teen beta readers. It's the first time you're getting ready to market. It's the first time you're analyzing different sites that promote or could sell your books and things like that. So there's so many firsts involved in this that I've kind of put off writing right now. I've actually been trying to read as much as I can because uh, this is the only time I can read is, is when I'm not writing because all my spare time usually is writing. So I'm trying to take this time to kind of absorb and learn the lessons we need to learn for this first book so that we can be ready to just churn them out after that. Because after we kick off this first book, I'm just going to be in writing mode and you're going to be in marketing mode. So, But you do have the first parts of several of your books written. Every single book I know what's going to happen. <laughs> it's kind of funny. Well, We're... except for the last three. No, I, I know what's going to happen. I think it'll change, though, as we get there because the style of the books has changed. But the basic yes. plot, it's funny because I, I found... Um, well, what number book would this be? It would be four, five, six, seven. The seventh book. I found the initial six chapters I had written in that uh, on a couple of years ago. And I was reading through it going, oh, I totally forgot about this. This is really cool. And that's when it occurred to me because of the evolution of the story coming from either previous existing movie scripts or TV scripts or story ideas that we had fleshed out that every single book I know the plot of. And that's kind of cool. I know exactly where everything ends. But the style has changed. It's gotten a little darker. It's a little more epic in its drama. So I know that that will, that will flavor the rest of the books. It maybe change some of the, the, some of the details in the plot, but the overall plot should remain the same. I will say, though, one of the coolest things that happened while you were writing Neil and Prey is you asked yourself, what if? And that kind of changed the entire book. So. It did. It did. You know, we meant to. I meant to mention that in the first. So in the we were talking about that what if in episode two, I think it was, and because there's so many of them, right? We're, we're, <laughs> we're having a hard time keeping track. We're on four after all. <laughs> so no, but I was in the middle of writing the story, and I had to stop for whatever reason, and I stopped on a on a question that the character Hamilton asks. And he asks a very basic question because the answer to that was no. But then I looked at the question and when I stopped writing and the question was just staring at me and I said, well, what if the answer was yes? And that changed everything. And it all and made the story much more complex and satisfying, I think. It wasn't my original intent with the plot at all. But by taking that moment to say, what if Hamilton is right? It changed everything. And it was kind of cool if I didn't stop on that one moment and if I didn't look at that question a little bit longer, the whole story would be different. So, Neil and Prey coming soon to an online marketplace near you. Yes, and I will say this, Dorothea. 
I put with a serious voice. Yes, yes. Okay. I'm going to get serious here, if I may. Let's get deep. All right. Lower so register. I, I just, I just want you to know that I have put years of my life into these books, and their success or failure is entirely on your shoulders. Go. <laughs> no pressure. Aww. Yeah. That's called love. I would just like to clarify for our audience that for the past seven or eight years. Yes. You have to go lower. Well, that's hard. <laughs> All right, do your best. Just go. For the past seven or eight years. Yes. I know exactly how much time and effort <laughs> you've placed in these books. How? Because I have been there working with you. From the very beginning. Well, then in this scenario, um, <laughs> this is doubly bad for you. <laughs> Why? Because if, if I fail, it'll, it's it'll, wasted 14 years of our combined of our time. time. <laughs> 16 years, actually, yes. Excellent. Yeah. But no pressure. I think you'll be fine. And if not, it's all your fault. You know, while some people would think a marketing team is necessary. That's why there are whole advertising agencies that work on products. I am very glad that this whole weight falls entirely on my shoulders alone by myself. Well, I do bring a certain skill uh, to the party, and that is to change my mind. Yes. <laughs> that is exactly what I was going to say. I was actually going to interrupt you and, and say, change your mind. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm really good about setting you up to fail. As usual. <laughs> right. That's that's our parent-child relationship, Excellent. I think. I'm actually going to share a small story. Oh, no. One time, we went on a family vacation to Arizona. Yes. That was awesome. <laughs> it was so much fun. We and almost we died went... in a car accident. We did. But other than that, it was fun. Yeah. Was the car accident your fault? Nope. No, there was a guy... Well, who's really going to know at this point? <laughs> <laughs> there was a guy stopped on a elevated turn lane where the speed limit's 70 miles an hour and he's literally stopped deciding where he's going to go and you're approaching he didn't have his brake lights on so you think the car's moving i'm going 70 he's going zero <laughs> that would have been fun yeah so to there was a lot of screeching tires be hospitalized that was not the story i was going to tell however. i know i'm sorry go ahead so we went to arizona for a family event and we stopped in this western town yeah it was cool where they, you know, had saloons and bars and shootouts. And it was one of those big tourist traps. And we had a lot of fun there. But I will never forget. <laughs> <laughs> we went and took a costumed photo. Right. You know, where you dress up. I was a cowboy. Your mother was a cowboy. Um, Gabe was a little cowboy. And you? Was not by choice, for the record. It wasn't my choice. I was a saloon girl. And I was very uncomfortable with that. I didn't want to dress up like a saloon girl. I was very, I liked being covered from head to toe. I liked wearing masks that you do closed have, my face you off do, from the world. You do have an inner Amish in you so when it comes to clothes. That's true. So I was very uncomfortable and I didn't want to wear it. And mom really wanted me to wear it because she wasn't going to. And <laughs> right. she wanted one saloon girl in the picture. Well, do you know why, though? Because when she was in college, she did a similar thing with her girls in the sorority. And they were all saloon girls. Whatever. She was in college. I was like 12. So <laughs> <laughs> I was uncomfortable. And I will never forget heading back to the dressing room. And I just had this look on my face like, I don't want to do this. <laughs> and you turn to me and you go, go tramp up, baby. Yeah. Yeah. It was a fine 
divine father moment. Thank you for sharing that. Which I held over your head for quite a few years. Including right now. Yeah. So that's kind of nice. <laughs> what did you say that made me think of that? I don't know. Your brain works in very <laughs> mysterious and evil ways. So in spite of my awesome parenting skills, the focus of today is to talk about stories that have hope and stories that kind of lack hope. And there's some that we've come across from people that are really talented that have surprisingly lacked hope, and it actually affects the overall success of the story. This mainly came from our experience watching and analyzing movies. But when you're watching these movies or even reading books, you're identifying with the characters, and you want them to succeed. You want them to have hope and to come out victorious. And when they're so filled with desperation, when they're so hopeless, it's really hard to want to continue to identify with them. Because even if you are someone who, let's say, is struggling with depression or a number of other issues, and you can really identify with what this character is going through, it's not the kind of escapism you're looking for in general. So we noticed that in these stories that we were consuming, that whether the character had hope or not was a key factor in how that story affected us and affected our enjoyment of the story as well. Well, and it's not only whether the character has hope, but if the world has hope. Um, let's talk about Dollhouse, for example. Let's start with Dollhouse. Joss Whedon, very cool show. Very From cool a show. plot standpoint. Yeah, and, and here's one of these things where the plot and the, the idea has to grow into its natural conclusion, and the natural conclusion has no hope. <laughs> so that's kind of the problem. For those people who never saw Dollhouse, the basics of it is, is that, I don't know, about 10 years ago, scientists believed, and we're getting closer to this, that eventually you'd be able to download your brain onto a computer and kind of back up your brain, your memories, and whatever. And so Joss Whedon took this basic idea and said, what if we could take everyone's personality out and put it on a hard drive and insert some other person, you know, manufactured person, into their brains? And so the dollhouse refers to a place where people willingly sign up for three years to be a doll. And so they have their personality, their lives are removed from their brain, stored, and then during the three years they're under contract, they are rented out for different people to do different escapist things. Like someone wants to go out with a cool biker chick rocker who can also paint. They'll program that in and they'll put that into the brain of the doll. She'll become or he'll become this person. And then they go on this date and then they come back. And their standard doll existence is a very basic sort of, I don't know, eight-year-old child, simple, no urges, no anything, just very plain. And they, they exercise and they're doing all these things when they're in this doll state. And then they get programmed to be these people. You clearly don't remember having an eight-year-old in a candy store if you think eight-year-olds don't have any urges. <laughs> well, they <laughs> they do, um, but they program them out. Actually, I do remember when I built my movie room and I made that little concession stand and it was full of candy. And I walk in there once and Gabe's like, I don't know, four or five, and he's the height of the candy. So just in front of, <laughs> front of him is this rose of candy and he's just staring at it and he knows he can't eat any of it. So I was like, Gabe, what are you doing? He's like... I'm just thinking about candy. <laughs> it was adorable. <laughs> anyway, so in the dollhouse, the problem in this story is that the main character, Echo, when she was wiped, when her brain was wiped, it didn't completely eliminate her personality. And every person that they entered into her brain never left either. So that was kind of the problem. So she became aware of what was going on and she started to fight it 
not realizing that she had signed up. All these people, for the most part, had volunteered at the end of three years. They put your original brain in. You think that nothing has passed except you're wealthy as hell because you've been paid this whole time. So that's the premise. The consequence of this, though, is that there will be abuse. Like one of the characters is a rich guy who has a woman, his wife. I forget if it's his wife or fiance, but he's abusive and he pays off the people at the dollhouse to put his girlfriend or wife in there. And so she's a doll and she works, but he can call her up and be mean to her whenever he wants and then shoves her back into the dollhouse. So there's abuses that come into play and then the technology grows. And so the natural evolution of this technology is that eventually this is a hardwired process. But what happens if you can wipe people's brains or reprogram people's brains wirelessly? What would happen if companies could do that or countries could do that, governments, so forth? And so the end result of that is that you have people's brains being wiped and rewiped, turned from moms and dads into soldiers, and then the other people wipe their brain and they become nothing. And, and everyone is wiping everybody's brain. And the entire structure of civilization in this plot model has to fail. Another consequence of that was the people who were wealthy could live forever if they wanted to. They could just put their brain in someone else's body. Right. And so they would, they would just use up their body and then take another person that they liked. And those people had no will in it. Once it became wireless, those people had no will that their body was taken by someone else. So there's a massive abuse and corruption in this. So again, from a plot standpoint, a very, very cool show. Yeah, awesome. I love science fiction shows. I think that this show was fantastic. Acting was amazing. Yes. It was a dream for the actor of the main character because every week she got to be someone else completely. It was really awesome. So there were so many elements to that show that were very cool and very well done, but it only lasted a season because it didn't have the ratings to sustain the show. And I remember watching the end of the show and actually being grateful as a fan of the show that it was ending because it wasn't a world I wanted to spend time in anymore. Yeah. When you look at the shows that are really successful mm -hmm. and we like Castle, we like NCIS, and those type of shows, the shows that are really successful are the shows that you just want to hang out with the people. The mystery or the challenge that they're facing week to week is secondary to the fact that you like these people so much, you just want to hang out with them. And as cool as the premise was in Dollhouse, there was no hope. I mean, they were being used, they were being abused, they were being manipulated, and society was going to crumble as a result. Because if and this is the problem that, that really sometimes really cool ideas have. If they go to their logical conclusion, it has to be awful. And if you don't go to the logical conclusion, it's a lie. And you know it when you're watching it. So that show had to go there. But because that was its destination, it was not hopeful at all. It just became increasingly less optimistic and more abusive as, a, as an audience member as you're watching this. That being said, there are some shows that do a really great job of having dark premises or dark conclusions, dark revelations, but are still fantastic shows. This show that I'm about to mention was one of the best shows I have ever seen in my entire life, and it is totally heartbreaking that they did not get to tell the story they set out to tell. They got to have a semi-conclusion because after the show was canceled, there was a movie, 
But this show was just amazing. It's another Joss Whedon show called Firefly. And it was fantastic because when Serenity came out, which was the movie that followed, we learned what the end conclusion was for the main mystery in the show, the main plot of the show. We learned what actually happened. And it was very dark, very dark. But the show itself was still so much fun to watch. It was a space western. It was hilarious. The cast was perfect. The set was awesome. The world was just so much fun to be in. And it had a great sense of humor. And it was just this fantastic show. So even though there was darkness in the world, because these characters existed in almost this familial kind of environment, there was still a hope. There was still something to fight for. They weren't isolated from the world or each other. Yeah, and you could argue that in both Dollhouse and Firefly slash Serenity, that the end result is that the world is reset, right? But the difference is, is that, like you said, there was family in Firefly. And what I love about the, the movie Serenity is that the main character, Malcolm, he starts out in the, in the pilot as a very devout, faithful Christian. And because of a, an event, he loses all of his faith. And in the movie, he has no faith, and the main enemy has a complete faith in the government in power. And so you have someone with no faith trying to find something to believe in, and the someone with all the faith finding out he can't believe in what he believes in. And it was this crossing of paths that was really intriguing. And so even though for the entire Firefly season, you had a main character with zero faith, it was still a hopeful show. It was really interesting. I love that show. I know. It was pretty awesome. It was amazing. I'm just going through my head right now. All the <laughs> hilarious quotes. It was the first binge show. I'd never binged a show before, but I heard about it. My brother Paul and I, when it first first on, we would see it and we go, oh, that's kind of interesting. And then Fox would change its time and whatever and wouldn't show it for three weeks. And we kind of lost track of it. So when I first bought it, I watched it. I'm like, and after about the third episode, you have to keep watching it. And it's one of these things. Why? You want to be around these people. You really enjoy the the people and the world is intriguing enough, but you really want to hang out with these people. And so I watched it. And then I, I said, my wife, who's not a sci-fi geek at all, I'm like, I, why don't you sit and watch this with me? And we were in bed one Saturday morning and we just started watching it. And after about the third episode, she's like, well, can we watch one more? Well, can we watch one more? And we spent all day in bed watching all 13 episodes of Firefly. Oh my gosh, it's so great. Such an awesome show. Fox definitely learned its lesson with Firefly because fans to this day... Well, on Big Bang Theory, they mock Fox all the time for canceling Firefly. Yeah, it was was a very special show. Although it was funny because there was a 10th anniversary panel for Firefly and um, someone asked Joss Whedon, how do you feel about the fact that there are all these fans now? Like, where were they when the show was on? And he said something which is very funny, probably because it's true. And he said, well, I honestly don't think they'd been born yet. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And actually, the show lived on more so because of its demise. You know what I mean? And and what's really sad is when you heard the actors talk about the different plot points and the different character journeys that were coming up in that show, it would have been pretty amazing. I actually saw one day when I was browsing online, someone made a entry to heaven gift basket and there was a bunch of things in there, but one of them was Firefly seasons two through (laughs) ten. That would be awesome. But anyway, that's an example of the same creator of two different shows and one has hope and one doesn't. You know, I was looking at movies and and this idea, when we talked about this idea, I was researching the different types of movies that seem to be hopeful or have hope and movies that don't. And when I look at the list, I think of, 
you know, movies that have hope or like Saving Private Ryan or Castaway or It's a Wonderful Life or Sixth Sense or things like that. And the movies that didn't have hope to me were like A Clockwork Orange or Chinatown or Requiem for a Dream. And when I thought about why, and if you look at the dollhouse situation and Firefly, it fits this model. Movies or stories with hope end up with the main character overcoming or maybe even sacrificing themselves to make a better change in the world. They beat the world. They beat whatever is facing them. And at the end, make the world a better place, even if it costs them their lives. In the hopeless stories, it's no matter how hard these characters try to change themselves or the world, they fail. Nothing really happens at the end of it. Or even worse off, that when they actually do something that they think is a sacrificial moment or a hopeful moment, is actually, when they dust clear, so to speak, is actually the cause of all of their future misery. So you have one scenario in Firefly where they're facing these incredible odds and they actually make a change at great cost for the betterment of their universe. And then you have Dollhouse where no matter how hard they worked, there was no way to overcome the consequences of this technology in their universe. And I think that's the core of what is hopeful and what is hopeless. I would agree. <laughs> I concur. <laughs> now, I was thinking about this too. When So we always like to take these stories and put them in the real world. And I was thinking about this and hope, I think for 90% of humans, resides in the fact, in the belief that God actually exists. Because if God exists, then there's always a chance. There's a chance at salvation. There's a chance at forgiveness. There's a chance to overcome suffering. There's a chance to overcome very negative things by not only a helper, but a force that is actually the creator, the, the person that could actually, that actually created all of this, could manipulate things, change things to help us overcome and get through this tough situation. And I think in addition to that, another good consequence that comes with faith is that your suffering can be used for something good. You may not overcome it necessarily, but that your suffering has a purpose and that purpose will help others or be for the benefit of the world. Yeah, you know, and, and so I've had Crohn's most of my, well, half of my life, and there's been plenty of suffering there. From a very early time, thanks to my brother Paul, I've, I've offered up my suffering to the Lord. As I've said before, I'm a devout person. And I was thinking about the purpose of suffering because our, our world has a really difficult time understanding suffering. And what occurred to me recently was that, you know, if we are true believers, that Christ came down is God incarnate in man that took all the weight of our sinfulness and suffered for three days and then rose again. If we really believe all that, then if you look at his suffering, as awful as it was, it was three days of immense suffering that equated to eternal salvation for all mankind forever. And that exponential good that comes from the awful suffering if we really believe that as believers, then we have to believe that our suffering, if we offer it up, if we do something and let the Lord do something with it, that our suffering can have that exponential good somewhere in the world or somewhere in time or some, God is the only one that knows. But in society, we hate suffering. I mean, it's all feel good. Don't, you know, if there's a problem, get rid of it. Um, if it's an inconvenience, avoid it. And like you said, with faith, it is. It mandates suffering because Christ was the example. We're supposed to follow that example. And if he's willing to suffer for exponential good, then we should be willing to do the same. 
I think that's especially true in the Western world in particular. Um, I will never forget having a conversation with a very good friend of mine who is from Africa, and he cannot fathom why people will take pills to relax. He's like, just relax. (laughs) He's like, go somewhere peaceful, stop thinking about things, and breathe. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) What? He cannot fathom why people take medication as often as they do. And I think that's because, to what you said, we were raised in a society where because we've been so successful in the past, if we don't want to feel pain, in general, we don't have to. Right. So if we go back to the hope and hopeless, if the existence of God for most people, not atheist, obviously, but the existence of a divine being is, I believe, at the core of hope, then obviously the absence of a divine being would be hopeless. And it reminds me of a book I read. It's called 23 Minutes in Hell. And it was about a guy who believes that he spent 23 minutes in hell. Therein lies the title. I was I was confused there for a minute. Yeah, clever marketing. <laughs> and what was interesting about his story, and I'd read other like saints' accounts of visions of hell, and it seemed to be similar to those. So it didn't seem all that uh, different from what saints have said. And basically, the, the interesting thing about hell, if you want to take it to the hopeless extreme, is that in hell, God actually hides his existence from people there. And it's actually done as a mercy because, well... Hell itself is a mercy. I mean, think about this. If, if When the angels rebelled, God could have simply thought them out of existence, right? But he didn't. He loved them. He gave them a choice. They chose to separate themselves from God. So instead of eviscerating them from existence, he chose out of love to create some place where they could live separately from him. Now he's everywhere. So he has to shield himself from their awareness. And that place is called hell. So the people who live their lives and live a life that that exemplifies to God that they also want to live eternally separate from him because they don't follow his teachings or whatever, then they too have to go to that place that we call hell. And in hell, he shields his presence from them because if they were aware, I mean, the suffering there is bad enough because the angels are taking, they can't attack God, the fallen angels. So they attack those made in God's image and likeness. And if that's true, then God is shielding his presence from them because it would only make their suffering worse because they would realize, oh my gosh, there is a God. I did fail him and my suffering is even worse. So when this guy was in hell, he had no concept of ever knowing of a God. And that hopelessness, especially in a situation where you're being tortured by these fallen angels, there was just nowhere to go to seek comfort. In his vision, he had the suffering was so intense individually by every person in hell that they were unaware of anyone else's presence in hell. And so not only was it torturous, obviously, but it was isolated and hopeless completely. And when I read that, the only reason I bring it up is when I read that, I it was the first time I the way he explained it that I could conceive a life without God and how hopeless that existence would be. I remember you telling me about people who had been executed for being believers in the past and the difference between the people who renounced their faith at the time of death and the people who didn't. The people who didn't renounce their faith died with peace on their face because they knew that in a minute they'd be with God. But the people who renounced their faith had just these distraught looks because they realized they had lost heaven. 
Yeah. And yeah, that's what um, one of the early church fathers talked about when there was persecution of the early Christians. And what was really interesting about this guy, so this guy gets out of this experience. What happens is like basically God's hand comes through this hell and pulls him out. And, and then he's in the presence of God. He's like, why would you put me through this? And he's like, because people need to know this, this is real. And so he gets out of this situation, and he's in the real world again, and he's not sure, right? Could have been a dream or whatever. So he's going to go talk to his pastor about this. He's not a Catholic. He's a, he's a Protestant. He's going to go talk to his pastor about this. And it takes him like a month or something to get up the nerve to say, I don't know, did I just dream this or whatever? So he drives his car to the pastor's house, and he's sitting outside the, the house, and he's like, Lord, I don't want to make a fool of myself. So could you just give me just a little hint to make sure that it was real? And he was back in hell for a second. <laughs> just a second. And he <laughs> God has a really good sense of humor. He sat in his car shaking for an hour trying to overcome the trauma of being back in hell. And then he went in and told the pastor about it. And then he ended up writing a book about it. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So I'm not a, I'm not a theologian. I am not some sort of Catholic doctor or anything of the church. Read that book if you want at your own discretion. But it was a very interesting way for me to understand the, even the concept, because I've been so devout my whole life, even the concept of a life without God. It, it was the first time I could get it. So this concept of hopefulness versus hopelessness have really impacted the way that we tell Gabby's story, because when Gabby goes through the events that she goes through, and she goes through a lot. Yeah, yeah. Even as much as I love her, I do kick her ass. <laughs> she goes through so much. There is this element of hope in it, and there has to be, because that's how we live our lives. We live our lives hoping in the dark times that the next day will be better. And the stories that don't have that really are just very, very hard to deal with. Yeah, I mean, when you hear about the, the, the Coptic Christians that were killed on the beaches of Tripoli by the ISIS people, and you hear them just praying simply, Jesus, help me. It's like those martyrs hundreds of years ago, thousands of years ago, where they're just like, look, I just need to get through all of this suffering. And we go back to suffering. The best moments of your life and the worst moments of your life are all temporary. And if you can just get through it, until the next moment, it's great. And then and then it's, it'll be different one way or the other. You know, when I was in the hospital and I was... Which time? I know. I've been <laughs> in the hospital a couple of times. The last time was really bad, and I didn't think I was going to make it, actually. And the suffering was really quite horrendous in a lot of ways. And I'm very grateful for the people who visited me, and especially my brother, Charles, and, uh, and my mom came down and everything. Which is when I, I left school, because I was in college at the yeah. time, and, and you were really sick. And I was actually arguing with one of my teachers about leaving school to come be with you. And grandma lived a few states away. So when I heard that she was down, I was like, look, my grandma's here. I got to go. Yeah. <laughs> it was sweet. My mom just came down. She just held my hand. That's all she did. It was sweet. Y'all have baby. So I, I was offering up my suffering, right? And, and the funny thing is, and again, I think this is a Western thing that you were talking about. I kind of felt because I was offering it up, it would be less. <laughs> <laughs> and then I realized as I'm going through this, that the whole purpose of suffering is the suffering, right? It's not that by offering it up, God takes it away from you. It's by offering it up, God does something with it exponentially good. When you look at the early church, the only reason it makes sense to me, one of the only reasons, that the early church grew in spite of massive persecution because every moment of that suffering and sacrifice equaled exponential good and growth. And if I do remember correctly, the only time that your suffering was relieved was when a friend of ours was suffering and offered it up for you. Yeah. 
So, that, I mean, that's a perfect example of, of, again, we don't know how it all works. But the reason I bring that up is that Gabby's character is going to go through a lot in these books. And her faith, or her trying to be faithful, is not going to make that any better. It will just help her get through it. Because it's temporary. It's all temporary. So, in spite of the dark nature of our series, they're always tied to hope because there's always tied to some level of faith. That's the type of characters we write is characters of faith. And the challenge that we have as faithful people is not that we have faith, but what do we do with the faith when we are faced with tough times? And that's the challenge of every believer of any faith. And that's why I think these books are not really Christian fiction, but they're just good fiction with a character of faith. I think that if you're of any faith, you will recognize this struggle. You may not recognize all the details of the faith, but you will recognize the struggle of how do I do good when it's so easy and quicker to get out of a bad situation doing bad. And we're all, as any believer of any faith, struggle with that. Actually, I think atheists, if you talk to atheists, they may not believe in a deity, but they believe in the idea of doing good for others. You know, So even they would struggle with, well, should I take a quick road out and be selfish and do what I think I can do really quickly? Or do I want to be selfless and do something for someone else at the cost of something to me? So that's why I think these stories are, are, are bigger than just a, a small little Catholic or Christian fiction. I think that struggle is everybody's struggle. So this has been another very fun episode. I know. We keep being so lighthearted. Sometimes, you know what? I think <laughs> I think at one point we're going to have to go a little deeper. Oh. Yeah. yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. I was just thinking about the audience members who started listening because they liked the first two episodes. Yeah. And have now listened to episode three and four, which have been much deeper. And they're probably like, what did I sign up for? <laughs> yeah. Well, let's get this <laughs> off of iTunes. Look, this whole story is all about the stories of hope and hopelessness and that how that translates to our lives. That's what this podcast is about, those events and stories that translate to our lives. And when all of you read Gabby Wells... Um... <laughs> and that will be all of you. Every single one. Or else my daughter's marketing is a complete failure. Gosh, you gotta stop with that, man. <laughs> Aww. <laughs> you've been shut down by fear i don't know what to do with that let's do a spoiler alert all right spoiler all right you hit the button so we can get the 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 noise hit the alarm all right spoiler alert i'm gonna find a new alarm this one is awful yeah but i'm kind of getting fond of it you know it's kind of like probably because it's awful well no it's kind of like my mom's cooking you know (laughs) (laughs) it was awful but it's familiar you know, you kind of like it after a while. No. Yeah. All right. Spoiler alert. Again, this is obviously film related. Do we talk about books on this podcast? Yeah. <laughs> if you are reading a story or watching a story where the main character is in a bad situation and they turn to their mentor who's really good and kind and helpful, the mentor is always the bad guy. Almost always. Almost always. Yeah. And it's it's even worse in movies because there's so little time, right, to establish relationships. The perfect example, I was watching a movie called Safe House with Ryan Reynolds and Denzel Washington. Ryan Reynolds plays this newbie sort of guy, CIA guy who has to take care of a safe house. And so he's kind of nervous. So he calls his mentor and his mentor says something like, don't worry about it. I'll always have your back. And I thought he's the bad guy. 
<laughs> because he didn't have to say that. He didn't have to say that. You know what I mean? Like the way they, they tried too hard in a short period of time to establish this sort of like father-son relationship. And it was so obvious that I'm like, well, he's the bad guy. Well, and it's also obvious, too, if the mentor puts the newbie in a situation that they're really not qualified for. Like Denzel Washington plays a character who's this experienced agent who's gone yeah. rogue. Yeah, another another guy gone rogue. Why would the newbie be in that situation? Why would he why would he of all people? <laughs> but you know this whole thing. So if people think, well that's where else has mentors gone bad? Well, the obvious example is in Star Wars. The chancellor is the mentor of Anakin and he's obviously a bad guy. In Batman, his the first movie, his mentor is the bad guy. We just talked about in Safe House. In the movie The Firm with Tom Cruise, Gene Hackman is his mentor and ends up being the bad guy. So it's a pretty common thing. Usually the mentors are the bad guys. They'll either end up, I was just thinking about this, they'll either end up being the bad guy or they'll sacrifice themselves like Obi-Wan, right? So you have the one who says, I'm your friend, but I'm really your enemy. And the one that says, I'm your friend and I will die for you. But eventually they get out of the way one way or the other because it's really the story of the main character, not their mentor. And as is common with many stories, the main character has to go through the main crux of conflict on their own. Right. And that may be the betrayal of their mentor. I mean, when that happens, I'm floored. Oh, I know. Every time. I know. I never see it coming. (laughs) And here's the deal. (laughs) Think about it this just in your own life. I have been your mentor. Oh, I've always known you're a villain. Oh, okay. (laughs) That helps. Man, that saves me some work. I mean, Dad, you introduced me to horror movies when I was very young. Not horror movies. Hitchcock movies. Where people are murdered. Very different. I didn't show you (laughs) Friday the 13th where people's heads were cut off. That's true. But that's actually not entirely true because you did show me The Ring when I was a kid. That was an accident. No, it wasn't. That's the way I remember. (laughs) I didn't show you the whole movie. No, you showed me up until we saw the girl in her closet and then you told me to go to bed. No. (laughs) All right. Your memory of this is obviously very different from mine. (laughs) All right, so back to let's 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 move past that and let's go to. I'm making you look like a really good father this I know, episode. I know, tramp up, baby. So one thing though about spoilers. So I was watching Person of Interest, which is an awesome show, one of my favorite shows. And usually it's the show about this machine that's created to help try to identify threats in the world. But this one, they end up in a courtroom, right? And they used our first spoiler alert which is if you identify some minor character with a name, he's the bad guy, right? Shame on you. Shame on personal Television. Yes. <laughs> so they're in this courtroom and one of the main characters has to serve jury duty. And so the story is about this guy's on trial for killing his wife. The wife was the creator of this new mobile Wi-Fi technology. And they think that out of jealousy, uh, the husband killed the wife because of her success. And they take a minute to introduce in the opening statements by the prosecution that, and it's only through the work of the CEO that the company has survived at all. And then we never hear from that guy again, but they named him and they gave him a title. And I went, oh, please don't be the bad guy. And guess what? He was completely innocent? Nope. Bad guy. (laughs) So yeah, even one of my favorite shows fell prey to our spoiler alert. If only they listen to this podcast. No, we've got to get this to those people for their own benefit. Oh, goodness. All right. You know, these people who've been writing this successful television show for a few years really need our help. Obviously are lacking in certain areas. <laughs> 
So anyway, um, so that's about it, Dorothea. Are you hopeful or hopeless after this podcast? You know, I'm a little bit of both. Are you? Yeah. You're welcome. (laughs) So thank you for joining us. As always, we would love to hear from you. So please leave a comment in the comment section below or leave a review for us on iTunes. Yeah, we're now available on iTunes. There's a link in the show notes that will send you to the iTunes store where you can subscribe to this. And if you could please rate it, that's always very helpful. It just gives other people who would stumble across it an idea of its value. So take a moment to do that. And if your name is Steve and you would like to defend it, bring it on. We would love to hear from you. Yes, because I have been called Steve my whole life. (laughs) So please do feel free to contact us at contactus at sunlightpress.com. All right. So that's the end of the show, Dorothea. That is accurate. (laughs) (laughs) I like your obvious assessments of things. Thank you. I think they're very valuable. Not really. I'm the marketing person. (laughs) (laughs) Buy this book because I need you to. (laughs) All right. So we will see you guys next time. Thanks, as always, for joining us. Thank you. Thank you.